absolutely clear that over the last 100 years, science and the technology it has birthed has simply exploded. I can remember my grandparents fondly telling me of the times when aeroplanes first came into existence and cars and radios and black and white TV and then colour TV and, and how they were dazzled by the, the novelty and wonder of these new pieces of technology. But now we live in the 21st century. I wake up each morning to my digital alarm clock. I then move into my lounge room where I turn on my high-definition TV to watch the morning news and see a new SpaceX rocket blasting off into space. And then I, I heat up my wheat bix in my microwave whilst I'm checking my email and Facebook on my iPhone, which is wirelessly connected to the internet. And then I move into my air-conditioned study where I do some reading but from my digital library on my laptop computer. That is the age that we now live in. I remember a few years ago walking down the street with one of my sons and he looked at a Toyota Corolla and he said, Dad, an old-fashioned car. Irony is we now have a Toyota Corolla, so I don't know whether history is kind of going back on itself, but this is the world that we now live in and none of us could probably imagine it otherwise. Lives have been saved, people have been entertained, moons have been walked on because of science and technology. And it's because we have advanced so far in our scientific understanding of the universe that many have now concluded there is no need for God. Science has buried the need for God. You may have heard of Bertrand Russell or Richard Dawkins, famous philosophers and atheists. Bertrand Russell once said this, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods and what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. You hear what he's saying? Only true knowledge is that which you can discover scientifically. Or Richard Dawkins, who's a little bit more provocative, said these two things. Firstly, you cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and hold religious beliefs. So, sorry if you're here tonight and you have a science degree. You're not as intelligent as you could be. He also says, science is evidence-based, but faith is not. And so we're wrestling with this topic. Christianity can't be true because science has buried God. God may have been useful when there were gaps in our understanding of the universe and he filled those gaps, but as those gaps have subsequently and over time diminished, so has our need for belief in God. But is that true? Have we always had a God of the gaps and so when the gaps are filled we don't need God? Do we have to choose between God on one hand and science on the other as if there's these two mutually exclusive teams and we must choose a side? Do I need to pick a team? Is it the Big Bang or a Big God? Do I need to choose? Well, I think our first point of call that we need to acknowledge is that there have been many people throughout history that have believed that you don't need to choose a team God or science. The eminent scientists Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Isaac Newton, in addition to their amazing beards and hairstyle, they all were great scientists and were men of faith, believed in a creator God. 
and there are many scientists today that follow in their footsteps. Francis Collins there on the left is a Christian man and he was also the previous director of the Human Genome Project, a project that billions of dollars was funded into by governments of the world to map the human gene code. An incredible project directed by a Christian man. John Pokinghorn there in the centre is a professor of high energy physics at Cambridge University, a Christian man. And many of you might know the third gentleman, John Lennox, uh, a very famous Christian apologist, but also a professor of mathematics at Oxford University. These aren't want-to-be scientists. These are eminent scientists, experts in their field, and they don't park their faith at the laboratory door or park their brain at the church door. They don't believe you need to pick a team. You can love science and you can love God at the same time. How? Why don't they pick a team? How do they hold both together? Well, let's return to that Bertrand Russell quote from before. You know that quote? What science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. It's a very provocative statement, but you need to ask, is it true? Is it coherent and does it correspond to reality? You remember that test that I argued a couple of weeks ago in terms of analysing the different religions of the world? Ask, is it coherent? Is it logical? Does it make sense? And does it correspond to reality? Well, that Bertrand Russell statement, what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know, is not coherent. It is self-defeating because scientific knowledge can only be discovered in the scientific method. But that statement cannot be measured in any scientific means. It's a self-defeating, illogical statement. It's like Stephen Hawking's in one of his recent books, The Grand Design, said, philosophy is dead, science is all that matters, which is a statement that you cannot measure scientifically. It in of itself is a philosophical statement. And so he's contradicting himself. His statement is dead and meaningless. It's incoherent but also think about whether it responds to reality as well. Can science tell you whether a church song, Man of Sorrows, that we sung tonight was an absolute bomb and will send us off crying into the night, or will it motivate us to, to rejoice and feel great? Science can't tell you that. Can science tell you whether a sunset is a real stunner or just an average end to the day? Cannot answer that question. Can science tell you why the universe exists and what the meaning of your life is? No, it can't. If you could keep me alive and examine my brain, as you look at the electrical impulses in my brain, can you determine the amount of affection I have for my wife and my children? No, you can't. Contrary to Burton Russell, science cannot answer every question that exists in life. Physics is great at answering the how questions, how things work, how water boils, how rockets can take off into space, but it cannot answer the bigger why questions. Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? People who study philosophy talk about those questions being metaphysics, beyond physics, beyond the natural world, and you need to find answers elsewhere. But sadly, many people throughout history and even more so today, I think, make the false conclusion that just because you can understand how something works means you don't need to answer the who question. John Lennox, that man I mentioned before, 
uses an illustration in his book, which is a great book to read on this topic. It's called God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Which is where I got the title for today's message. But in his book, he uses the illustration of Henry Ford and the Ford motor car. If you know, Henry Ford was the designer of the first Ford motor car. I watched the Bathurst 1000 last week. I don't know whether any of you watch it. There are a few Ford motor cars going around the mountain uh, last weekend and, and quite a large number with their, their hoods open on the side of the, the track. And I'm not saying anything about the reliability of the Ford motor engine at that point, but if you went over to one of those Ford motor cars with the hood up and you looked inside the engine bay, do you know what you would not find? You won't find Henry Ford in there. Even if you had a magnifying glass and you look for him really carefully, you will not see Henry Ford in the engine bay of a Ford motor car. You'll see the engine that he created and designed or that's been designed following his footsteps. And if you go to TAFE and if you study mechanics or university and electrical engineering, you might understand how that engine works or does not work. But simply because you can now understand how it works, does that mean that Henry Ford didn't exist? Of course not. You might imagine a conversation like this with Henry Ford and his son. You see, Dad, this engine works via internal combustion, the principles of which explain how this whole thing works. To which Henry Ford says, yeah, I know, I, I made it. To which his son might say, but that's impossible. I just explained it. Do you see what, it's, a, it's an illogical, just because you can understand how something works doesn't mean that there wasn't somebody who created it. And it's the same with our universe. That our scientists today can explain more than ever how our universe works, how it's progressed from the Big Bang till today, does not mean that there wasn't a creator God behind it all. Do you need to pick a team? Is it Big Bang or Big God? Yes. Yes to both. You can hold both a Big Bang and a Big God. You don't need to pick a team. God and science have been long-term friends they haven't been enemies. In fact, I believe that if you have faith in God and a love for science, it can be a wonderful contribution to your life. I think, in fact, faith in God can help your science and science can also help and strengthen your faith in God. Let me show you why. Let's take the first idea. Faith in God, I believe, can help science. Faith in God can help science. Because you need to understand that one of the fundamental principles or rules, if you like, of undertaking the scientific enterprise of observing and experimenting and then drawing conclusions depends on two things. One, that you can trust your senses, that what you observe is reality. And it also depends on a rational or intelligible universe. And so we talk about laws of nature like the strength of gravity, that it's been the same strength from the beginning to the end. It's not like gravity changes yesterday or we have to fear that gravity will be different tomorrow. Otherwise, none of our predictions, none of our plans that we make, we can rely on. But there are many predictions and there are many plans that we undertake day by day resting on these scientific principles. Now, in line with that, Einstein famously said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. 
Because if there is no God, then there's no reason why we shouldn't expect everything to be rational and understandable. It could be chaotic and random. But as you observe the universe, it's not like that. And so Einstein says it's incomprehensible that it is comprehensible. And I think faith in a rational or intelligent God who created a rational, intelligible universe for his creatures to study is a very fertile ground, foundation, to undertake the scientific enterprise. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be a Christian to be a good scientist. I'm not saying that. But as a scientist, you do need to believe in a rational, intelligible universe. And the Bible from the very first page tells us that we do live in a rational, intelligible, orderly universe because it was made by God. And so I think your faith in God is a great foundation for science. You take God out of the equation, as that video said at the beginning of the service, and then you have no sure foundation to believe that your senses are correct or that the universe might change its laws into the future. But I also think that science can help your faith in God. Science can strengthen your faith in God. For example, science right now and, and the most common um, scientific conclusion about our universe is that it had a beginning. Stephen Hawking in his great famous book said, all the evidence seems to suggest that the universe has not existed forever, but that it had a beginning in the Big Bang. Now, I could talk about cosmic background radiation or galaxy ripples that will no doubt bore you to death in trying to prove that there was a Big Bang. The question that I think is far more interesting is, what caused the Big Bang? Now, science cannot answer that question, although it is logical to draw a conclusion that something caused the Big Bang, but what or who is beyond the realm of physics and science? But logically, it would make sense if time and space came into existence at the Big, the Big Bang, then the cause of it must be something outside time and space. And the Bible gives us an answer to that. In the beginning, God. Before time and space, before gravity and gas, there was God. And he caused the Big Bang. He caused the universe to exist by his word. Let there be light. Bang. And it was so. Now, the Bible writers don't argue that point too deeply. In fact, the Bible writers tend to just assume that it's obvious that the universe had a beginning and it was God who caused it. So that reading from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Just look up, it's obvious that this must have come from somewhere, says the psalmist. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans says something similar. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You hear what he's saying? People can't come before God one day and say, oh, I didn't know that you existed. Paul is saying there is enough evidence just if you look up at the heavens, if you look at our planet, if you look at the complexity of human life and all of life, there is enough evidence there to hint at the least at the very existence of God and his power and eternal nature. In the beginning, God. Science tells us at the moment clearly that the universe had a beginning and that's affirmed and confirmed by the scriptures themselves. A second way that I think 
science can strengthen our faith in God, I'm, I'm using this little line that I've taken from Psalm 139, which might be familiar to you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Because one of the things that science has shown us over the last hundred years in particular is just how fearfully and wonderfully made not only we are, but our entire universe. How finely tuned it is to support human life. The conditions, we're told, at the Big Bang had to be so delicately balanced for our universe to exist, for it to expand and not collapse back in on of itself, but not to expand too much so that planets and galaxies could form. We're told that the Earth is just the right distance away from the Sun to support human life. Astrophysics call it the Goldilocks zone based on the nursery rhyme, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. That the Earth rotational speed is at just the right amount to support life on our planet. That the strength of the nuclear and electromagnetic forces are just perfect to enable carbon molecules to form, which are the building blocks of life. I've put this quote inside your sermon notes tonight from Sir Roger Penrose, uh, an eminent scientist. He has calculated how delicately balanced that the universe needed to be to support our existence. He says this, and you can read it there, the overall precision needed to ensure our universe could support life as we know it had to be accurate to one part in 10 to the 10 to the power of 123. Now, Maria's a maths teacher. How big is that number? It's so big that it's actually impossible to write it out because there's not enough paper in our planet to put that many zeros down. In fact, there is not that many particles in the known universe to write that number out. But that is how delicately balanced our universe is to support human existence. Now, if you're completely bored by that, now imagine you're bored by this whole thing and so you pull out a deck of cards to play poker with the person next to you. So Chris and Harley are playing poker and Chris manages to get 12 royal flushes in a row. Wow. That could happen. There is a chance that that could happen. Although what is Harley more likely thinking has happened? He's cheated. He stacked the deck. To get 12 royal flushes in a row, the probability of that is almost impossible. It makes better sense that Chris has done something to stack the deck. Now, when it comes to our universe and how finely tuned it is for life, yes, it is theoretically possible that everything just happened by chance. A pure accident, one in 10 to the 10 to the 100, whatever. Or is it more rational and reasonable to believe that somebody stacked the deck in our favour? That a life-creating God made things in such a way as to support human life. If you love science, you don't need to be embarrassed by loving God. And if you love God, you don't need to be afraid of studying science either. It was faith in God which provided the launch pad for the scientific enterprise many years ago. And much of science today is not discrediting belief in God, but actually affirming and confirming faith in God and God's existence. You don't need to be prepared. But 
there is a question in this whole debate and issue that many Christians struggle with. And that is the question, but what about evolution? What about the theory of evolution? Because some Christians, as they read Genesis chapter 1 in particular, which talks about the creation of human life, take a very literalistic view of Genesis 1 and believe that God created our universe in six 24-hour periods of time about 6,000 years ago. And if you believe that, then that stands in obvious contrast to the theory of evolution, which for the theory of evolution to work requires millions, if not billions of years to work out. So does that mean that if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you cannot believe in the theory of evolution? That that you know, if there's one part of science that you can say, no, that can't be true. Or if you want to believe in the theory of evolution, if that is very compelling to you, does that mean you have to give up the Bible or give up your faith in God? Well, please be assured that there are many Bible-believing Christians who see Genesis chapter 1 not so literalistically. The text, as you read it, doesn't read like a scientific textbook. In fact, John Lennox said if he was writing an encyclopedia article on how the universe came into existence and how it evolved over time. It would be thousands of pages long and nobody would understand it. But you can read Genesis chapter 1 quite easily in a short amount of time and you can see quite clearly what is going on. But it doesn't read like a scientific textbook. It doesn't even read like a normal historical narrative. It's very stylized in form, almost poetic at points which I think is meant to draw our conclusion, what is the real purpose of Genesis chapter 1? Is it giving us a scientific account of the beginnings of all things? I don't think so. I think the primary purpose of Genesis chapter 1 is to answer the question, where did everything come from? Who caused it? And how did he do it? And as such, there are a large number of Bible-believing, loving Christians who believe that the theory of evolution doesn't necessarily stand in opposition to Genesis chapter 1 and can actually fit with the rest of the Bible as well. It's not like we deny the rest of the Bible either. It can coexist with the doctrine of sin and death and mankind and salvation. I'm quite sympathetic to that view. Although... I do think there are some limitations to the theory of evolution that we need to acknowledge. Which is difficult in our culture because we're often told at school or at university that the theory of evolution is just fact. We just blindly need to accept it now. But I think that there are some holes in the theory that need to be recognised. I think there is good evidence for what biologists talk about in terms of microevolution, like fruit flies growing larger wings. Now, I know in the theory of evolution, they're not really growing wings. I know it's about genetic mutations and those survive and m enable the thing to adapt. I, I get that, but you know what I'm saying. At the micro level, things adapt and change. But I haven't been convinced that there is much evidence at the macro level of evolution of one species transforming into another species, a fruit fly evolving into a bird or a chimpanzee into a human. The fossil record, as I have studied it, which is not, you know, a great degree, but I have looked at it, indicates that there are some examples of intermediate species, you know, kind of animals or 
living things kind of halfway between one species and another. Uh, some people talk about Archipetrix, somewhere between a dinosaur uh, and a bird. But if the theory was all-encompassing, the fossil record is limited in those examples. There's just not many of them. In fact, if you Google the Cambrian explosion in your free time at home, if you're feeling like you can't get to sleep one night, Google the Cambrian explosion, it indicates that there was an explosion of new animal life in a short period of time, not a long period of time. And I think that discord in the actual archaeological evidence that we have about macroevolution should at least cause us to pause and not just wholeheartedly embrace the theory of evolution. There might indeed be another theory that better explains how life evolved over time. But if somebody could come up with a whole lot more evidence to fill the gaps of our understanding of, of human life and could actually show that macroevolution is, beyond reasonable doubt, the best explanation for how life came to be on planet Earth. Does that mean that the Bible is wrong? Does that mean that my faith in God lacks a sure foundation? Do I need to now pick the science team over the God team? Well, of course not. Because remember, we don't worship a God of the gaps, but we worship a God who is the agent of every mechanical process, even the process of evolution, if indeed that was the way that God decided to create life as we know it. Just because you can explain the inner workings of internal combustion in a Ford motor car doesn't mean that Henry Ford didn't exist or doesn't exist. Same with the living God. I don't think you can use science to prove or disprove the existence of God, but I think science is greatly helped by belief in God and our belief in God is greatly strengthened as we do science. So where does that leave us tonight? Does God exist? What's the meaning of life? Are we just here by pure chance and accident? Are we from nothing, by nothing, going towards nothing? Or is there a creator God behind everything, an intelligent mind that has set things up, stacked the deck in such a way that we are here tonight thinking about these big questions? Are we designed? Are we loved? Are we imbued with meaning and purpose? I think science hints that we have meaning and purpose because of the way things are set up. But the Bible definitely assures us unambiguously that we are imbued with meaning and purpose, that we're not here by accident. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you remember him, the son of man that you care for him? We are significant. God didn't just make us and then leave us, but he thinks about us. He, he remembers us. He loves us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So much so that we know that in John chapter 1, that the creator of all things didn't just enter into his creation abstractly, but entered in and took on human form. John chapter 1. In the beginning. What does that echo? It echoes Genesis 1, doesn't it? In the beginning. But here it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then verse 14 of John 1, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Word. 
divine information, divine intelligence, divine mind was there at the beginning. In the beginning, God. And this mind, this word became flesh, became human in the person of Jesus. So that we, who are also made in the image of God, could know God more completely. Not just dream up ideas of what this divine mind might be like, we could see him. And we can still today, as we read the scriptures and the testimony of Jesus. And Jesus tells us who we are and what our life is all about, what the meaning of life is. In John 17, Jesus says in his prayer to God, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life. In other words, this is life. This is the meaning of life. This is why God made us in the beginning. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, brothers and sisters, from all eternity, God has been a God of love. Father, Son, and Spirit, completely satisfied in and of himself, but as an expression of his love, he created something different to himself, a universe, our solar system, our planet, all the birds and the animals and the sea creatures and all the people of this planet, including you. And even though each and every one of God's human creatures have at times turned their back on him, God did not cease to love us. So much so that he entered into our life and lived the perfect life that we couldn't. Died the death that we all deserve for our imperfections and miraculously rose from the dead to prove his divine nature and power. To prove that he had done everything possible for his creatures to truly know him and enjoy relationship with him. That's why we are here. To know him and to enjoy life with him. And Jesus makes that possible. So my final question to you all tonight is, will you give your life afresh to him tonight? The one who made you. The one who stacked the deck so that you could live. Not just 90 years on this planet and then cease to exist, but 90 years getting to know the one who made you. And then an eternity enjoying Our Heavenly Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars which you have put in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. We are so small in this vast universe that you have made. And yet we know that you have made us. That you have finally tuned this vast universe to support human life. That you created us to know you, to love you, to enjoy you we thank you that jesus has made that possible and as the heavens declare your praise as the sky proclaims the work of your hand and they do that without words open our mouths open our lips encouraged by this message tonight that we might forevermore declare your praise and your wonders to the world that you have made in Jesus' name we pray.